Ian. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was I was going down the, the English track, you know, to be an English teacher. So uh, anyway, God knew. Uh, and then, um, and I also have a graduate diploma in applied theology. So, and I know that when I was at uni studying psychology, I always saw it through kind of a biblical worldview. Um, yeah, and I got myself into trouble a few times because, <laughs> because I was looking at, you know, psychology through that, that you know, being very aware of the, the fall and, and what God's got to do with all of this. So, uh, and then with theology as well, it's, um, it was applied theology. So, you know, how does this work in our lives? You know, we're all very human and um, broken, and, and how does this all look? Um, so, last week, Michael shared that spiritual maturity kind of has this destination of love. Um, and I really like Second Peter 1. It's got the building blocks of maturity. Uh, it ends in love, and it says, So, devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith with goodness, and to goodness at understanding, and to understanding at the strength of self-control, and self-control at patient endurance, and to patient endurance at godliness, and to godliness at mercy towards your brothers and sisters, and to mercy towards others at unending love. Um, I look at that list, I'm like, oh man, I've got stuck at so many of those points, but the goal is love. Uh, so Dallas Willard, he, he wrote, spiritual formation for the Christian basically refers to the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. So spiritual formation takes intentionality. Uh, Willard in his other, remind, uh, other writings reminds us that while Holy Spirit's doing the work, he does use other people and community as well. And also the, yeah, the spiritual disciplines. So, in seeking God, should we seek to know ourselves? What if taking a journey into our inner being is actually part of the spiritual formation journey? We're really good, and we talk about seeing God in those around us, but sometimes we don't pause long enough to actually look at God and see what's happening in, in us. Um, Augustine, many, many years ago, wrote, People travel to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the seas, at the long course of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and yet they pass by themselves without wondering. So this is nothing new. <laughs> um, I've got a slide, Nisha, please, of a painting. Uh, so in the book After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda, so it's a book on deconstruction, which is really a, a great read, he tells the story of a man who didn't wonder enough about himself. He says, consider that famous story of the little boy who wanted to become an artist. His desire to be cre a creative is evidenced by his vast collection of drawings and sketches later found from his earliest years, many of which we have to this day. This is an example. Despite the fact that, this that his hard disciplinary father wished him not to, the boy applied to a local art institute in Vienna to become an artist. His pursuit was met with great disappointment. While many of his own friends had been accepted, he was not. The rejection letter from the Institute's directors said it all. His work was, in their words, unsatisfactory. The combination of his father's cold demeanour with the message of being unsatisfactory led to a deep, seething anger that was never really dealt with. The boy would later write in his most widely read book that his hatred within had been born during that season of rejection in Vienna. Rejection shaped his entire life, and it reshaped the entire world. Of course, it is sobering to find out why Adolf Hitler could have hated so much. That kind of hatred doesn't come from nowhere. 
It's not unlikely that the death of millions of Jews under Hitler's tyrannical reign was the result of a man who never worked through his childhood pain. Because of a deep, lingering, unattended childhood wounds, in the words of Stephen Pressfield, it was easier for Hitler to start World War II than it was to face a blank square of canvas. Uh, so obviously that's a really extreme example of not dealing with your stuff. Um, but the principle remains, hurt people will hurt people. And this journey, this inward journey that we take, it's not about um, self-obsession. It's actually a part of the journey to get to know God better and have greater intimacy. Uh, last year, Michael preached a couple of messages on the critical journey, um, and a whole bunch of you guys went through the critical journey with us in Awaken You. Uh, next slide. Thanks, Nisha. Uh, so the premise was pretty simple. There are six stages in the Christian walk. Um, I know it's not very easy to read, but so stage one is recognition of God. This is the place where we come to know who God is, and we might come to it through need or awe, depending on where we are in life, what it is that drives us into God. Um, the second stage is the life of discipleship, and that's where we start to learn about God um, from other people. So we're often learning about God through you know, the lens that they see God through, um, and we might be starting to get connected into a, into a faith community. Uh, stage three, that's where we start to outwork what we've learned. We've learned some skills and some, you know, we've gained some gifts and stuff. You know, we've been in this community a while, and we start to, um, to, to work. It's a practical uh, doing stage. Um, for me, I think I stayed in that stage for about 15 years. Uh, stage four, and this is where we're going to sort of land a little bit today, it's the inward journey. Um, this is the, and, and in the inward journey, you'll see it says the wall. So somewhere in that journey, you're going to hit a wall, and it's a wall that you can't get through without God. There's a lot of sort of death and surrender happens in that place. Um, the wall is also known as the dark night of the soul. So it's not like a real awful, awesome place. And I know last year when we did the critical journey, there was heaps of people that were, oh, yeah, we're, I'm there. Um, Peter Scazzaro, who's written a lot on um, emotional um, health and spirituality, he says that only 15% of people get through the wall, uh, which is a little bit of a sad number, really. Um, it is the place where emotional and spiritual health converge. Um, and stage five is the outward journey. We've rediscovered God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. There is this deep inner stillness that now begins to characterize our work for God. So we're still working from God, but it's from love rather than for love that we might have had in those earlier stages. Um, and stage six, which is the pinnacle, hashtag goals, uh, is the life of love. And you know when you're around those people, they just ooze love and have this childlike joy um, and everything they do is for the sake of the world. So when we arrive at the inner journey, we start to accept our emotions and our needs. We start to learn to depend on the Spirit to cultivate intimacy with Jesus and Father God. We start to long for God's presence. There's a bit of a thirst there, especially when we're at the wall, we're in the desert, we're, we're thirsty. Within the inner journey, there's this radical self-honesty. We start to name truth. This is the part of Christ's work in our lives. Um, it's where we get honest with ourselves. Like, are you honest with yourself? What's the state of your soul? Are you honest about the wounds that you're carrying? Are you honest about the unredeemed parts of your life? So the inner journey is not about navel-gazing or self-obsession. It allows us to look back on painful events and see them accurately for what they were. And rather than inventing our own narratives and our own stories in our heads, we get God's perspective. Um, and it avoids us making excuses for bad behavior. It's a place where we can find deeper intimacy with God. 
In the inner journey, we get to experience Jesus, Jesus healing and redeeming our pain and our failures. Faith is no longer about the outward doing. It becomes an inside-out job. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that often God leans on the parts of my life that aren't redeemed. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about when you guys were singing that song this morning, like, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. There's been times where I've been reluctant to sing that line because you know what you're praying. What you're singing, and so uh, there have been times where I've been reluctant, and I know that those are the areas that God tends to lean on. We need to submit those areas to um, the rule and redeeming reign of Jesus, because we transmit what we don't transform. Hurt people hurt people, but on the flip side, healed people heal people, and I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. I want to be Jesus to be able to use me to help heal people. Um, and it's not just the sake, for the sake of me, it's for the sake of others, it's for the sake of my marriage, it's for the sake of my kids, it's for the sake of this faith community. Chuck DeGroat, uh, he is a, a Christian um, professor in um, counselling uh, and pastoral care, and he says, look at yourself. Most people might think you're a pretty decent person, and you probably are, that is, until you're triggered by a comment your spouse makes or an injustice at work. Uh, or an issue that irks you. Out comes the fury, or bitterness, or cynicism. Perhaps your kids are in your warpath. Perhaps a friend gets the brunt of it. Worse still, when challenged, you make excuses, you play it down, and you blame others. Um, last year, during when we were doing the critical journey, um, I read this quote from Robert Mulholland. He's got a book. He's got a couple of books, really good ones, but the inward journey. And he says, we find in our hearts a thousand things which we would have sworn were not there. God only shows them to us um, as he makes them appear. It's like an abscess which bursts. The moment when it bursts is the only one which horrifies us. Before that, we were all carrying it without feeling it, and we did not think we had it. When it was hidden, we thought that we were healthy and quite as we should be. When it breaks, we smell the stench of pus. (laughs) Yeah, ooh. (laughs) The breaking is healthy, although it is painful and disgusting. Each of us carries in the depths of heart a mess of filth, which would make us die of shame if God should show us all as poison and horror. Now, we can't transform what we're unaware of. Before the abscess bursts, we've got no idea. Um, but once it's exposed, Jesus can heal us. Um, a couple of years ago, I danced with the edge of burnout for a number of months. And um, there's three main factors I was reading. There's three main factors of burnout. And one is being um, a type A overachiever personality. Two is being a people pleaser. Uh, and three is having your identity tied up in what you do. That year I was three for three. Um, not a great path I was on. Um, and I was in stage three, you know, in the critical journey, stage three, the doing stage. And I'd been there for 15 years, I think. And, you know, because after all, it's really beneficial for the church to keep people in the doing stage. Um, Church, uh, churches are not always great at, at moving people on into the deeper journey. Um, and because, you know, you get stuff done in that stage. Um, but I was caught up in some really powerless and reactionary behavior. I tried to remain low maintenance in some of my relationships. I looked for rescuers and others. I doubted myself. I didn't ask for help when I needed it most. I took responsibility for things that weren't mine to carry. I accepted the language around a culture of honor, but I didn't practice it. My forgiveness method was suppression. I made up stories in my head. I wasn't kind in my frustration, and I was working from a place of performance. People all around me were crashing into my wounds, 
but I was ignorant that it was me that had the problem. I was blaming everyone else. Um, last week, one of our cats had um, an abscess. We didn't know about it until it burst, and I was like, great, great, thanks God for this $86 um, <laughs> illustration. Um, but we had no idea, and then all of a sudden, Nathan comes in, he's like, something's wrong with it, and it was this, I have a photo, but I didn't bring it today, because I thought, you probably don't want to see it. It took us ages, we didn't, we took us ages to figure out what it was, because it was so gross, it did not look like a cat bite. We think it was actually the other cat in our house that had, there had been a bit of a row um, earlier on in the week in our hallway, and so I actually think it was Buttercup that uh, bit Lincoln and infected him. Um, we do that, don't we? It's in the house. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, but we couldn't. We had no idea that it had happened until it had burst, and then that was when we were able to get him to the vet and get him antibiotics and treat him. Um, can't treat a physical wound unless we acknowledge it. It's the same with our emotional wounds. If I'm wounded, the whole body is wounded. Um, that year, when I was dancing around burnout, um, I was hurting other parts of the body out of my pain. Um, and, you know, infections, they get into the blood and they spread. I attempted to work harder. I attempted to suppress thoughts and behaviours. Um, but it didn't fix my misbeliefs, my stink attitudes and my faulty perceptions. Not a fun year. <laughs> um, I was attempting to live life on two solid legs. So we've been talking about the head, heart and hands. Um, and I think, you know, I had the, the head and the hands kind of sorted. I was busy and I, you know, believed lots of the right things. But I shut down my heart. Um, and so, you know, two-legged still, not really a whole lot of use to anyone. Um, in that season, my wounds were revealed by my overreactions. So there's a saying, and Michael shared it last week, if it's, if it's hysterical, it's historical. I can tell you there was definitely times I got into my car and I was hysterical uh, away from people, but uh, it came out and it was just revealing what was in my heart. Um, I'm an avid journaler. I don't know if anyone else here journals, but um, it's always been a safe place for me to vent, honestly. Um, and there was a picture being built that year through my journaling. Um, and it wasn't a commentary of my character, but it was a commentary of the pain that I was in at the time. So I've got some following statements that are straight out of my journal over about a three-month period when I was dancing with the, the burnout. So this is the self-talk that I was telling myself. It was sort of the narrative, dodgy narrative I was building. I feel taken for granted. If they're falling apart, I don't get to. If I was gone, aside from stuff not getting done, would I be missed? I'm not good enough. I've never done a conference before. What if it fails? What if I fail? I'm frustrated, but actually maybe I'm a little bit angry. It's not, it's not Christian to be angry, you see. <laughs> we say we're frustrated. We're not honest. Anyway, uh, everything feels broken and disconnected, and I don't know how to fix it. And I feel like I'm just holding space until someone better and shinier comes along. I had to move from a place of doing to a place of being. I had to step into the inner journey. God was inviting me into it. I'd hit the wall and I really didn't want to stay there. So there were people speaking into my life. They were calling out my blind spots. They were exposing what was inside of me. There were people that said to me, Sarah, you're not kind when you're frustrated. They said, Sarah, you get too focused on the task and you forget to check how we're doing. My counselor at the time, she said, Sarah, you put all your worth into the hands of others. Sarah, maybe it's not all about you. <laughs> that one hurt. Uh, Sarah, you deserve better. Um, and Sarah, you bring value to your world. Sometimes the blind spots that people bring is actually good stuff. It's not always um, awful. And Holy Spirit was revealing that there were relationships in my past that had damaged my sense of belonging. Um, but God was saying to me that my belonging is not conditional. So there was a bunch of truths I had to believe. I had to believe that instead of serving me, my expectations were abusing me. And that failure says nothing about who I am. 
No one other than God gets to determine my worth. Shame is uncomfortable, but it's not fatal. This feeling isn't about now, it comes from childhood. I need to teach my brain that that was then and that this is now. Um, and I think had I not embarked on the inner journey, I don't think I would have, well, I don't think I'd still be in ministry, or if I was, it'd be really toxic and you would not want me up here. <laughs> so our strong emotions often don't point to something in the moment, but they point to something in our past. Hysterical is historical. Um, if you uh, react with more um, emotion that may be appropriate for the um, event, it's not isolated. Um, and I'm sure for those that are married, their spouses can point to those moments <laughs> when we may have been hysterical. Rejection, abandonment, insecurity, shame, betrayal, abuse, it's all going to fog up the lenses that you're looking at your current situation through. Um, if we stay stuck in those places, listening to those echoes of the past, it will stunt our spiritual maturity. And I think all of us want to be moving on that path towards love. And we miss those opportunities to draw close to God and let him expose our wounds, to let him comfort us and to let him heal us. Um, King David in the Bible is a great example of this. Um, he, uh, if you don't know the story of David is in Samuel in the Bible, but uh, there's a story. So when uh, Samuel the priest was looking to anoint a new king, uh, Jesse lines up all his sons, but he's left uh, David out in the field. David was not included, uh, was not thought of enough to be brought in this lineup. When David heads to battle to deliver food supplies to his brothers, his brother Eliab tries to shame David in front of the other men. We know that he goes on to kill Goliath, but there was still shame and rejection. Uh, so in Jewish tradition, David was actually illegitimate. In Psalm 51, David says, In sin my mother conceived me. And in Psalm 69, he says, Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. They treat me like a stranger. Um, and of course, King Saul had a tendency for throwing spears at David and then pursuing David with murderous intent. David was anointed king, but it'd be many years before he got to take up that role. There was a lot of rejection in the life of David. Um, in 1 Samuel 25, there is a story where David overreacts. I've heard people say that, oh, David was so good because he didn't kill Saul, uh, even though he had the opportunity to. There were other people that <laughs> did not have that, um, that grace. So uh, David uh, was in the wilderness. He had his 600 men, uh, and there was a bunch of um, shepherds, and it was sheep shearing time. And so he sends his guys to go talk to the owner. The owner had thousands and thousands of sheep. Um, he says, hey, look, it's, it's celebration time. It's shearing time. We've kind of looked after your shepherds, and you haven't lost any sheep because, you know, we've got this army out here in the wilderness. You know, hook us up with a meal. But Nabal, when he heard this request, he said, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young man. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who have come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. David had quite the reaction. He heard no, uh, and so he was off. So what did Nabal say to upset David so much? He was sitting on that wound of rejection. He questioned David's identity and his value. You're not known. You don't belong. Uh, meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went and told his wife, Abigail, what had happened. Um, and Abigail was smart. She wasted no time. Very smart woman. Uh, she gathered a whole stack of bread, uh, loaded up the donkeys, and she was on her way. Uh, as she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming towards her. 
David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man in his household is still alive by morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and all those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is the present I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Um, and even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe and in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. For the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. And when the Lord has done all he has promised and made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. So what did Abigail do? First she showed up with food, so she met his current need. But then she spoke into his true identity and she reinforced his value. And David was changed by truth. You are known. You're a fighter in the Lord's army. You're important. Your dynasty will last. You are valuable. God will keep you safe. And you are secure. God is still faithful. Now, acceptance is like an antibiotic to an infected wound. And David has a scene to be, desire to be seen and known. So Psalm 30, 139 that Annette read was written by David. And he starts with, O Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. And at the end, he invites God in again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. We've been created to be seen and known, and it wasn't to the full that uh, we engaged in shame and hiddenness. Um, and the inner journey is an invitation to restoration. God wants to heal these wounds that we're carrying. And infection will prevent flourishing. I've got narratives about myself, and that when I accept the invitation to have my blind spots revealed by Holy Spirit and others, God dismantles those narratives. There are parts of our lives that we've not yet introduced to Jesus. Um, James Finley, he's a Christian psychologist who studied under Thomas Merton, who was sort of a contemplative um, back in the day. He tells this beautiful parable that reminds us that accepting our feelings is actually part of our faith. He says, imagine that you have a dream in which you're climbing a high mountain. The valley below is where you grew up, where you experienced pain and made many mistakes. You are trying to transcend and leave this place by reaching the summit, on which you'll be sublimely holy and one with God. At, as the summit comes into view, the wind rising from the valley brings with it the sound of a child crying out in distress. You realize that there's no good choice but to go down the mountain to find and help the hurting child. Turning back, you descend into the valley. Following the child's cries, you arrive at the very home you tried to leave behind. You gently open the door and look inside. Sitting on the in the corner of the floor, as your own wounded child self, that part of you that feels powerlessness and shame. You sit down next to the child on the floor, and for a long time you say nothing. Then the most amazing thing happens. As you're putting your arms around this child, you suddenly realize that you're on the lofty summit of union with God. 
I think it's just a really beautiful picture of what it is when we engage in the, in the critical journey, when we engage in this inner journey, that actually sometimes sitting with those wounded parts of ourselves, that is where we meet God the most. Learning to feel your emotions softens your heart um, and it allows the grace of a deeper experience of Jesus' friendship, the Father's love, and the Spirit's presence and power. Spiritual growth without emotional growth leads to illusion and pride, but emotional growth without spiritual growth is empty and vain. So we need both. All right, so we can become safe people when we're honest about where we are and we engage in God's invitation to healing. We're not going to have it together always. We will make mistakes, um, but we're becoming. Uh, so how do we find healing? Through Jesus and through community. Um, after all, and I think the, this line was brought up in the last series, we're all just beggars leading other beggars to food. Henry Nowen says, spiritual formation always includes responding from the heart to the needs of the poor and a spirit of true compassion. The inner journey deepens our spiritual formation so that we can respond in love, not respond as clinging symbols. If we don't enter the inner journey, we may find ourselves in a place of self-deceit. Um, Dallas Willard describes that when people are unwilling to be exposed, those factors, so the past hurt, the shame, the sin, um, continue to govern their actions and shape their thoughts and emotions. We just keep going round and round in circles, keep trying to employ the old behaviours to get, to get something new. Um, but if we engage with the inner journey, we find a greater freedom, freedom from those thoughts of confusion uh, and self-doubt and condemnation. And we become a presence in the world. We're more capable of being image bearers. We remove the logs from our own eyes before we try to deal with the specks in anyone else's eyes. Um, so I just want to share just a couple of spiritual disciplines that I found really helpful for me uh, in this journey. Uh, one is solitude and silence. That's when we, we stop long enough to listen to God and to hear what he has to say about us, what he has to say about himself, and what he has to say about the situations that we're in. Um, silence and solitude are quite disgusting, but they're really <laughs> I don't love them as disciplines, but that is where God does the deepest work in me. Um, I think it might be Dallas Willard who says that, you know, it's like in the wilderness, we cling to Christ or die. Um, and there is, we're so used to the noise and the distraction and everything around us that when we actually stop and we sit and we let God speak to us, he will expose stuff in us, but he'll also bring the comfort and the healing. Um, and we must confess regularly or we'll stop, stockpile those injuries that eventually fester and become infected. Um, and that's where things like squads are really helpful. We've got a small group where we can say, hey, this is where I'm at. Uh, and another discipline I mentioned before was journaling, and that's something I do regularly, and I know it's not for everyone, but it is actually really helpful. Um, I have journaling prompts that I've written for myself. Uh, every day I'm answering, so what happened today? What did you read or hear? So what am I reading out of scripture or hearing from books or, you know, what's sitting with me that is really helpful? How am I feeling? Actually pausing to go, actually, what is going on in me? Um, because we're often so busy that we don't actually pause to, you know, we may have been triggered during the day and we've not actually paused long enough to see what is going on inside of us. What am I grateful for? Gratitude is massive. We need to be, uh, we get, yeah, so busy that we forget to pause and um, it's like in the Old Testament, you know, they'd place stones wherever, you know, wherever there was a big sort of God moment. Like, let's be putting stones in our lives of like, this is what God's done today. This is what he's done in my weakness. This is what he's done outside of what I have the ability to do. And finally, what is God inviting me into? So it's pausing to go, actually, yeah, God, what are you inviting me into today? Is it rest? Is it forgiveness? Um, what is going on in that?
Um, and then I have five questions uh, that are really helpful if I have been triggered. Um, and there's lots of different variations on this. Lots of people have come out. But uh, So what has happened? So just write down what happened. Let, let the gross stuff out. What am I feeling? How am I feeling about that? I might be angry. I might be upset. Um, what's the story I'm telling myself? So you can be quite real about, uh, yeah, that I don't belong. I'm not wanted. I'm not good enough. And what does the gospel say? So when we get to ask God, actually, what do you say about me? What do you say about you? What do you say about the situation? And then what counter-instinctual action is needed? So instead of behaving in the same way we've always behaved, is there a different choice I can make right now? What is God leading me into? Uh, Band, you guys can probably come back. Um, So our healing is not just for our personal flourishing. This is not about me. It's for the sake of the world. Um, And as Michael said a lot recently, you know, we're getting Jesus what he paid for. Um, Recently, God invited me back into a memory that I had suppressed for 16 or so years. Um, On that day, I was minding my own business, driving to the airport for a day of meetings, um, when I felt like God wanted me to turn the music off. Um, I'm a beloved daughter, but I'm also a bit rebellious still. Uh, So I turned the music down, not off. Um, (laughs) God's been, uh, he's had quite a lot of fun. Actually, even this morning, my Bluetooth would not connect in the car. And I was like, okay, God, I got it. He's been really inviting me quite heavily into uh, solitude. And I've never had so many, like, technological issues in my life. Um, Like, I'm pretty good with the sound desk here. But, like, there have been days I've come, I'm like, okay, I'll just come and have some worship. Or I'll just put soaking music on. Like, it won't work. Um, (laughs) one, One day I came and I turned YouTube on. And um, I was like, okay, cool. Knowing that YouTube always has, you know, the auto play on. And I was like, cool, okay, God, you can just take care of the, of the playlist. And uh, I was lying on the floor down here. And then the song, it was a good song, worshipping. And then the song, it stopped. No song started afterwards. I was like, what are you doing, God? Anyway, so I got up, went to the sound desk, because, you know, I'm a bit rebellious. Uh, put on another song, and um, it was all good, and I was really getting into it. And then, like, the band in the video stopped playing. <laughs> So it wasn't even too long. I was like, okay, God, got it. Okay, I'm going 